Welcome to Unfighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today we will be talking to Sai Neji as part of our series on sponsorship. This will be the last episode in the four-part series. So far we've covered the athlete, the gym, the apparel equipment company, and lastly, Sai Neji with Rebellion Muay Thai promotion, which is one of the biggest promotions in Australia. The promotion is based out of Melbourne and recently had its 22nd show. If you are listening, um, you're obviously a member of the Patreon at this point. I am releasing only half of my content on Patreon. The other half will be publicly available. So thank you so much for supporting me and supporting this podcast. I'm also going to be producing some more content and extra content. I have an interview with Sakman Kohn to uh, who is most infamous for fighting Johnson on in the elbow war coming up soon. So definitely make sure to take, uh, keep an eye out for that. And I am still unsure of whether I'm going to release these short videos publicly or half of them on the Patreon as well. If you're in, if you have an opinion one way or another, definitely let me know. Um, you can reach out to me on the Patreon, uh, email me at a.mat.lucas at gmail.com or hit me up on Instagram, mattlucasbkk. Uh, so as always, thank you to some of my supporters, um, especially some of the early um, initiators such as Jeff Dohelio, who is out here in Bangkok right now making the IFMA documentary. Jeff was able to meet his funding goal, which was quite impressive. He went over his $10,000 mark, so definitely very, very happy for Jeff and excited to see what he makes. Also, as always, thank you to Patrick Rivera for helping getting this show started. Patrick is out here helping coach the United States Muay Thai Federation as they participate in the IFMA Games out here as well. The American team so far has done surprisingly well, so we'll see what happens with them as they progress in the tournament. A little background on our subject today. Sai has started Rebellion Muay Thai and other promotions since 2011 so almost eight years now he's always wanted to promote and fighting and kickboxing since he was young he watched enter the dragon the bruce lee movie and was really inspired by it he had a mma gym in melbourne with muay thai and boxing for a while it eventually transitioned into just a boxing gym so he has that in melbourne he also is possibly looking at opening a Muay Thai gym in the future. He started Muay Thai and 
when he was 17, he actually got into shoot fighting at first and then moved into Muay Thai when he met his first teacher, Lao, out in Thailand, out in Australia. So without further ado, the interview with Sai Neji of Rebellion Promotion. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show today, Sai. I know you're very busy with the bouts coming up this week. Um, I appreciate you taking your time out. My absolute pleasure, Matt. Um, so let's sort of get talk, started about some of the sponsorship issues and sort of how that is involved in promotions. Who are some of your sponsors right now and how have you obtained them? Uh, so my main sponsors at the moment are um, Quest Environments, who are my major sponsor. I also have JPS Codings, who've been a very long-term sponsor of mine since Rebellion number uh, number three, um, JPS Codings. Uh, obviously, Fairtex, uh, they are um, official equipment partner. Um, we also have a couple of other companies. We have Ladbrokes, which are a uh, online sports um, betting company. So they sponsor the event and also allow us to have online and at venue betting on all the fights. And also a recent sponsor that's come on board um, is Kitty Formwork. So, um, you know, the only Fairtex is really directly involved in the sport. The other guys are um, sort of fans and supporters of the of, of myself and the sport and the event. Mm-hmm. And how did you obtain them? I know, for instance, that Quest is actually, they sponsor Sam Bark and Chad Collins as well, correct? Correct. They've been um, they've been involved in Muay Thai in Australia for a very long time. Um, most recently, they've been getting quite involved in boxing, Western boxing as well. But they were a lo- long time uh, sponsors of John Wayne Parr and Bunchu Jim, they um, they sponsored some major uh, events. Previously, other fighters, they got on board and started sponsoring uh, Rebellion uh, about four years ago. Uh, they were a partner sponsor of one of the gyms that I dealt with, and um, uh, Steve and um, Darren, who are the brothers at the helm, I got along with them really well before there was any sort of a business sponsorship relationship and um they came on board when i needed a major sponsor and then for a little while they stepped away from the muay thai game and they've just come back uh recently um they're they're one of those uh companies that they have absolutely no direct gain out of sponsorship they do it for the love of the sport and also they like having their brand and their business represented at the events JPS Coatings was uh, they they're just wonderful people, um, John and Claudine. They've they've again been involved with almost every show in Australia at one stage or another. We've been very lucky. They came. I invited them to my third show, and even when they came to that as my guest, they ended up uh, sponsoring in a small way. And um, after the one show, uh, John asked me to meet him at his office, and basically. Uh, I had an amazing conversation with him. He was really behind, got behind what I was doing. And, 
you know, he said he'd been to a lot of shows and he really appreciated the level of professionalism. And they've been a sponsor uh, for the last sort of six years, six and a half years at various levels. But just every, anything you could ask for as a sponsor, that it's them. They don't, they're not demanding. They're just, the, the relationship is amazing. No, and obviously Fairtex uh, has been on board for the last couple of years. Um, and it's it's like a pet favorite sponsor of mine because it's such a brand that I've always uh, liked. I've liked their gloves. I like their fighters. So that's that's been a really amazing addition to it too. You know, some of your main sponsors like Quest and JP Coding uh, aren't directly involved in the sport like you were saying before. So what benefits do they get directly out of it and what do you give them? Um, I think they're, they're basically, you know, you have people who are patrons of the arts and I think they're just patrons of uh, fight sports and Muay Thai. Mm-hmm. They, I think they really enjoy the community and they, they, they believe in what I do, I, I think, um, more than anything else. Um, the, the benefits those two particular brands get, I think the only benefit that we do really offer them is um, – is I guess a little bit of uh, entertainment to the to them to their staff and you know customer base, but purely it's I think those two particular companies and Kitty Formwork, they're in it for um, I guess a little bit of exposure of their brand to a different market, but also it's mm-hmm. it's almost like a feel good thing where they know they're doing something and you know with our sport it's so small that a contribution of theirs goes a long way towards helping fighters. So they sponsor fighters, they sponsor events and we give them that exposure at the moment. Um, in the last year and a half, what the way we've been trying to give them the most benefit is through our extra content that we've been creating. So I've got a very good guy, uh, Tom Gathercole, who's a full-time content uh, producer for rebellion. And we try to give those brands as much exposure and uh, publicity within our industry as much as possible via YouTube content and uh, Instagram and Facebook and all of those things and creating uh, stories about the fighters and the events. So we're just trying to boost their presence and profile in the industry. The extra content creation is has like the Quest logo, the JP coding ad at the end, something like that. Yeah, we do exactly. So we've also got a podcast. So every episode, um, we have a, one of our sponsors as the sponsor for that podcast. All our videos, so the longer content videos you'll see on our YouTube channel and our Facebook, it's always presented by one of our sponsors. Um, that's something we provide as a as an overall part of our sponsorship proposal. But it's it's not something any of them have ever expected from us. But it's just something that we've added because. You know, we run four to five shows a year. So giving a sponsor enough exposure at a live event is very hard to do. We've also uh, had a period where Rebellion was um, on delayed broadcast mm-hmm. on Fox Sports. This show coming up is scheduled to be broadcast again. So obviously their brand presence will be there on the ring canvas, on the um, on-screen graphics and all mm-hmm. of that. You said you have four to five shows a year. In Australia, or at least in Melbourne, you have to book them pretty far ahead of time, correct? Yeah, we do. So obviously, there's a limited talent pool of fighters, especially the for 
on the Australian scene, rebellions um, really we, we we go after the sort of top five to ten percent of the mm-hmm. fighters. So to make sure we get a full card of really high level fighters, you do have to plan it ahead of time. We also don't have dedicated fight stadiums, so we do need to go and um, find the appropriate venues that we can host events at. So that's all, you know, pre-planning. And obviously, we're working within an environment where there's other promoters that we I have a working relationship with. So trying to schedule ahead and make sure that our dates don't fall on top of each other is really essential. I mean, we, sometimes we have sort of regrettable circumstances where we are on the same weekend or close to each other, but we try to avoid it as much as possible. But also for Rebellion, we, we do want that, uh, sort of eight-week build-up, uh, stories on the fighters, just building up the excitement and anticipation to make sure by the time the event comes around, there's a genuine hype around it. And what do you think makes for an ideal sort of sponsor relationship for a promoter like yourself? Very fortunate to have the sponsors mm-hmm. that I have, but I wish the only thing I wish I could change a little bit about them is that I could provide a more direct benefit. Um, so... I think if it's the relationship, it's something that long-term, I mean, it's a cliche, but being a win-win situation on all levels, because at the end of the day, when there is economic circumstances, what we provide is a, it's a real peripheral of spending for the businesses. So we can be one of the first things to go and be cut down. So if we can provide a direct relationship, uh, that's um, and it's a clear-cut uh, benefit, it's certainly a much better way for it to exist. However, I think for me as a sponsor, the sponsor can't dictate the direction of the event. So um, there should be no conflict of interest. And I mean, you would have seen with Fairtex, I have Fairtex fighters on Rebellion all the time, but there isn't ever a situation where I have to match the fighter with an easy fight. In fact, when they come, they've probably, the guys have, won as many fights as they've lost so there's no you know Pram and Mr Wong don't put a prerequisite on that relationship of you know where your sponsor make sure the fighters have a easy run or easy win or anything they they trust Mm -hmm. the matchmaking they don't question it and we do that and same with my other sponsors there's no unrealistic demands because we, we do have uh certain things that we have to uphold as the character of the show that can't be compromised with a sponsor. So for those things, I think obviously if there's a direct benefit that can be traceable between the promotion and the sponsor, that's really key uh, for long-term growth. And also that the sponsor has no effect on the actual ethics of the show. Do a lot of the fighters that appear on your show have sponsors themselves and how do you deal with that? So, for instance, maybe Sholm is fighting on your show soon and has an acupuncture sponsor or a nutrition sponsor and wants to bring in a banner. How do you deal with that sort of situation? From day one, when we started, we moved towards the – like from Rebellion number three, we started having all the fighters wearing Rebellion mm-hmm. shorts, uh, our sponsor of that shorts. And other than sort of two circumstances, we haven't allowed any other additional um, uh, sponsorship branding on the shorts. We've kept that very clear. Mm -hmm. So if the fighters want to wear a T-shirt into the ring and 
sort of after the fight, that's completely okay. But we don't allow for anything extra like banners in the corners or anything like that. The fighters, their main source of exposure to their, for their sponsors is usually their uh, independent social media. But we do have a very clear line with that because um, at the end of the day, the Rebellion sponsors are the people who make that event possible. We try to work in as much as possible with them if they do require it. But I find most of the fighters don't have the sort of level of sponsor that puts those demands on them. Do you see a growth in the amount of sponsorships that athletes are getting in terms of athletes that are appearing on your show? Look, it's it's hard to gauge uh, in, in great detail because I think a lot of there's a lot of fighters that come to me and to fight on the show, and I see on their social media the number of sponsors they have, and you can tell at a glance that most of those sponsors are sort of they, they'll they'll get a free massage or they'll they'll get ten percent of their supplements or anything. So there's a there's a lot that don't uh, have really uh, big uh, significant sponsorship. But there's definitely fighters that are starting to pick up decent sponsorship amounts. So, um, and those are the fighters that are mm-hmm. either have a very big name. So, I think like someone like Toby Smith, there'll be people who will sponsor him, and they almost they're just part of the journey. Or they're fighters who are very good at marketing themselves. So, I've seen fighters who have insignificant amount of fights, and they do have sponsors where there is an actual financial. Um, financial transaction involved but i'm seeing more of it with more of it more with people's ability to use social media than their level of fighting because there's there's genuinely fighters who get in the ring and they're the best fighters in australia like someone like jordan godfordson i think is probably one of the most unheralded fighters for coming out of australia he's such a high level good fighter he's fought summer pad he's fought some really good guys but he's not walking around with a lot of sponsorship um, on him he's he's still a sort of working man's fighter has his day job and then fights Muay Thai for the love of it why do you think those fighters aren't necessarily getting the sponsorships and why aren't they able to do social media as well as some of the less experienced fighters do you think it's something you know with their gyms and coaches or they just don't know how or they're not interested I think is um the the gym culture is definitely a big part of it. There's certain gyms that have a very uh, put your head down, shut up and work uh, culture, and guys like Jordan come from gyms like Cal Sock, and you know guys like Roy Wills out of the Thai boxing pit who are just hardworking fight gyms, and there's no bells and whistles with them. I mean, I think those guys, as the gyms themselves, have only recently got active with social media. Part of it too is that their focus. I mean, some of them just uh, see it as a challenge and they just, it's part of their life and they train to fight and the sponsorship isn't as big a factor in it. They just make it work within their lifestyle. Their, their fight purses on a big issue for them. They just doing it to do the best they can in the sport. I think it is, it's their, their attitude. Some people come into it and they're, they're not coming from as much of a purest fight sports side. They're coming more as a, you know, it's another thing they're doing, adding to their social media resume of, you know, things they do. And one of those things is being a fighter. And, you know, the, the barrier to be 
being called a professional fighter in Victor in Melbourne, Victoria, especially is quite low. Basically, if you're not fighting padded Muay Thai, you're a professional and you might be getting no money for that fight. But to add that professional fighter to your Instagram profile and a couple of extra sponsors on it, that's a big deal for some people. So they're in it for a slightly different reason than, you know, your Jordan Gottfriedsons and your Roy Wills and your Tyler Hardcastle. And it's it's the same with the shows. My drive with the shows hasn't ever been too much with the sponsorship. Until recently, I would have had one of the lowest amounts of sponsorship behind my show. And that's been because I come to the, my main focus with the shows is matchmaking and production of the event. And all the sort of sponsorship stuff's been secondary. But now we're at a phase where to go to the next levels, we need that sort of backing. So we've become a lot more hands-on with it. It's been interesting seeing your growth over the last couple of years. I actually saw your arch nemesis recently, Andrew Parnum, and he was saying that uh, now rebellion's (laughs) gone to a point where it's not the fights that sell, it's rebellion that sells, Uh, that people just go because it's a rebellion show. Um, And it seems like a lot of that has to do with the quality of the matchups, also the quality of the production. Um, how do you feel you've gotten to that point and what's the next step in that sort of journey? Uh, it's nice of Andrew to say that. Look, I think that that is, has become the case. It's uh, We have a very high percentage of attendance and ticket sales that are non-fighter related. So the bulk of ticket sales usually for shows comes from the individual fighters selling tickets to the shows. So we're lucky. We do a lot of on, online ticket sales. Um, I think I've, you know, my stubborn personality, I've, I've stuck to what I wanted day one. When Rebellion started, there wasn't any, at the time, any pure Muay Thai shows. So there was always shows that had kickboxing and K1 and boxing and a couple of Muay Thai shows. And the first Rebellion was all Muay Thai, um, no padded fights, which was also rare at the time. By the third show, all the fights started being pro, uh, full Muay Thai rules, no modified Thai. Um, and it's we, I've stuck with that. And it's been tough because there's been times where financially it hasn't made sense to do some of the things we've done. So I've had a lot of main events in Melbourne that have fighters from, two fighters from interstate fighting each other. And it's just been, we've been dedicated to making sure we just, display Muay Thai in the best way we can. And I think, you know, as that happened, we got a really good local following that became sort of real fans of it. And they they pushed the word out. And all those little things of just consistently making sure the fights are as evenly matched as possible. We get really nice venues. We spend money on production. Has after seven or eight years of real hardships that actually started to pay off. And now it's at that point, like I said earlier, where I felt like about a year and a half, two years ago, it had started to plateau out and, you know, it's, it's, uh, we had to take the next step. So Tom came on board as a full-time media production person and we started to put more focus in different things and, you know, started to get a little bit more practice with the finances of running a show and stuff. And it's, it's starting to really to move along. I've definitely noticed a bigger impact from Tom doing so much media work. Uh, 
I actually met Tom when he was out here just sort of getting started with his Sentimental Bear project, which is a great series of sort of behind the scenes fight videos. What is the media direction you're looking at going and how does that sort of tie into Rebellion? When the first day sort of Tom started, my my explanation to him was, and I, it's it's one of the challenges for me because I've got stuff in my head and trying to get it out is is the hard part. But um, I, I'd noticed going to a couple of sponsor meetings, talking to just people in general who were involved with uh, media here was that presenting ourselves at something that happens four times a year isn't a very exciting prospect. And for me, one of the things I loved about professional boxing was HBO 24-7. So I love watching the pay-per-views, but the four HBO 24-7s in the lead-up, I love them almost as much as the fights, if not more. So we're trying to create a make rebellion an all-the-time thing instead of a four times a year thing. So we're slowly trying to do things that are actually educated people about Muay Thai. So Tom did the Weapons of Muay Thai series. We're now, the next stage is we're going to make up some content regarding scoring and judging because I think that's one of the big key things is helping more people understand Muay Thai and make them a fan of the sport because sometimes they don't understand what's happening. Um, and also technique videos. And obviously the big thing is for people to get to know the fighters. There's um, the the identity of the fighters isn't really well known enough here on the broadest sense to build our uh, presence. So we want to get people to know the personality of the fighters, know their history, watch their fight highlights, become a fan of them. So when the next live event does come up, they're like, yeah, I want to go watch Ramesh fight or I want to go watch Tyler fight. So it's a thing where I want basically every week for the fans, all the new to be exposed by something uh, from Rebellion, whether it be a highlight video, an interview, a podcast, something. So they're just involved. It's always part of it and keep growing our audience, keep growing our audience and just make Muay Thai in general in Melbourne a lot bigger and hopefully in Australia too. What are some of the difficulties in portraying the fighters? I know you've done the uh, profile on Compent Lack and also Jake Lund. What have been sort of the pros and cons of that process so far? Um, look, with uh, obviously like Compet, like we're lucky to have yourself helping us. We had some people helping with Jake Lunt. Some of the hardest parts are obviously accessibility to the fighters when they're outside of Victoria. Sometimes Tom flies or drives to another city and Australia, for those people who don't know, is quite big and stretched mm-hmm. out. So that can be challenging getting that quality, but also it's something we're learning and the fighters are learning is we don't want to just show up and the fighter says, yeah, it's been a good training camp. I've been running and kicking pads. We want to try to get the stories out. So our practice now is to try to get the story of the fighters out more. And that's something Tom and I need to work on more, but also I think the fighters, you know, getting more comfortable about talking about their story. So that, that can be quite challenging and also, you know, like we do things where we'll b- 
build the story of the fighter for two, three weeks in the lead up to the show and four days out they're injured and they pulled out. You know, that's that's the next stage of the challenge is to show the sto- that story because it might not lead to the fight, but there's there's a whole story of why they're out of the fight and then they come back to the next show. So the ultimate challenge, the ultimate thing we're, we're sort of working eventually towards is one of our super eight eight-man tournaments is getting the background story of all the eight fighters and their, their transition through that eight-man show, one-night show, and then the winner. And we, we sort of wanted something that's a one-hour, 90-minute package at the end of the day that we can, you know, be really proud of and put out on social media or try to sell it to an online platform or something like that to just get that exposure out even more. Have you had a very successful case of sort of this fighter story that you've done so far? We've had glimpses mm-hmm. and that's that's something that um, so- sometimes I go with Tom and I ask the questions. Sometimes Tom has to do it on himself, but it's along the lines of the podcast at the moment where um, we're practicing that. There's such an art to it because I, I watch the good guys get that story, that gold out, and that's something we need. And I think our, our content is young still. Like I started getting videos produced at Rebellion 3 for the show because I, I believed in it. But the intense sort of profile pieces and stuff that we're doing now, it's only been going for a year. So I think in the next two or three years, we're going to start getting that out a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. So we're not there. We get glimpses. Sometimes we ask fighters the question and they start to speak and then you can see them pulling back in. And that's the next level. We just, we got to get that gold out. You know, it, it's going to be good for us, but it's also going to be good for that fighter that people connect to it. And, you know, it's all about that connection, that human connection. If someone can relate to the fighter, see something that they, they, they're going to really develop their fan base. Yeah. What do you think makes the fighters retract and sort of come back with more pat answers? I think there's probably a certain fear of vulnerability that attracts people to fighting. And there's things that people go through training and fighting to prove to themselves or there's something about themselves that they're trying to hide or crush or get rid of through fighting. And I think that's the thing where if that weakness in their personality, which isn't a weakness, what they may perceive as a weakness starts to show, they want to hide that. They don't want to show any weakness in their personality that they may perceive as a weakness that they don't want their opponent to know or they don't want to be judged on. So it's still a pretty sort of, I guess, a macho sport in in a lot of ways. So I think getting people to get comfortable and talk about their background, talk about their history uh, can be hard. It's happening more. There's more fighters talking about mental health issues and all, all sorts of things. But I think it's that where they just get to that point and they're just not yet comfortable to let it out. And I think once we get one or two people doing it, I think it'll open up the floodgates. You've definitely been doing the podcast more regularly and interviewing a host of really good interviewees and subjects. Do you find it difficult when people put you on the spot to sort of be drawn out as well in the same sort of sense as some of the fighters? I'd like to think not. Um, I, I, I feel when I get 
questions thrown at me. I mean, you might be finding it today. Is I probably speak more than people want to hear sometimes. But, you know, there's, there's probably there's stuff that uh, I think I, I, I haven't been asked that I might get asked and I'd, I'd end up being quite sheltered about. Um, I do ask everyone that we interview on the podcast beforehand if there's anything they don't want me to speak about. And there's been a few guys who've got really interesting, colourful histories and I've tippy-toed around the topic and I I think the next level of making the podcast what I want it to be is to sort of start to crack that open because I, I like some of them are happy to talk about it, but it's just finding a way to broach those topics has been has been challenging. Mm-hmm. Going back more towards our initial conversation, what sort of drives you to keep doing rebellion? It, it, it's it's hard to say, and like financially it's not a it's fine finances aren't really enough of a motivator i i kind of believe in rebellion and also i have a lot of people who believe in my belief of rebellion so i've kind of feel like i've had a lot of support and i owe it to them but in my sort of deep heart of hearts i think we've just started to scratch the surface i don't think muay thai is going to be a sport that's going to attract the millions in australia but I think it's got a much bigger audience than it currently has. But I also, there's cards that I have in my head that I'd like to do that I'm just getting closer and closer to doing. And I think if I had to stop rebellion tomorrow, I, I think it's it's really unfinished business. So there's something in my head, there's a, and I haven't quite clearly got it out, but... It's something that I I know when I get there I, I've reached it, but there is an there's an ultimate goal of this show that I want to have and this venue and these fights and this crowd and this experience um, and it's just kind of chipping away trying to get it to that because there's there's a lot more to do and um, I think that's that's what keeps it interesting. It's not just fill out a room, get this money, walk away, forget about it, and come back three months later. And it is it's. The people who are fans of rebellion or part of rebellion, it's they're very um, passionate about it. The people who come and volunteer for two days and help run the event and stuff, it's just a really addictive sort of community to be part of. Like, you know, I, I meet these guys like Jared and I've met Timo and stuff through Muay Thai and these relationships have become such a big part of my life mm-hmm. that it's just hard to think about walking away from it. Do you feel like that relationship building was and community building was intentional or was it sort of a byproduct of what you were already doing? It's it's a byproduct, but obviously, you know, it's something you you can go into something with an intent with, with intent. So if you go into it with an intent of having really good relationships and enjoying what you're doing and working with people you like, I think that automatically sort of sets it off you know it's it it, it it rolls on so i i think the people who fight who fight on rebellion who the trainers and all of that we we sort of have a common passion for this thing and we all sort of believe each other in what they're doing so it's just it's become a byproduct the community has become a byproduct 
of our belief and our passion for Muay Thai. Obviously, you've talked a lot about some of the strengths and good points about rebellion, of which there are many, I would agree. What do you see as some of the weak points, though? Obviously, number one is our exposure to the wider community. Um, and that's something that's we get stuck into our little bubble of a small bubble of Muay Thai people, and we think we're like we're this big fish, but um, it doesn't have the bigger exposure that it needs. I also think one of one of the strengths, which is a massive weakness of it, is that I'm a very uh, sort of a one man band, I, I know best kind of guy. So it's that at that point where there probably needs to be one or two other people involved in it who have a say and have a drive in it. And I think that's that's a weakness that I need to kind of overcome is because I try to do everything and have a say and hand in everything. And I think initially that works, but eventually, you know, you can't be good at everything as much as you'd like to think so. And look, the other weakness is the fact that we've, it hasn't been a sponsorship driven thing for a long time for a professional fight event. You'd need the capital behind it to support its growth. So that's one thing that I haven't focused on for a long time. And now we're starting to focus on a lot more because end of the day for the sport to grow to the next level through rebellion, that's one of the things that needs to change. So how can you position it to sell to potential sponsors like say Coke or Singha beer, something like that. Yeah, look, I mean, that that's, that's the challenge because the main super mainstream brands are a lot harder to get through, uh, especially in places like Australia where a combat sports aren't part of the national sort of psyche of this is what we do. Um, as opposed to Thailand, where Muay Thai is part of its culture, but also fight sports traditionally in um, in places like Australia, in, in particularly in Melbourne, have been associated with an, an undesirable element. So that's something that we need to, and we are working on, is lifting the image of the fighters. That's a huge reason why the Roots Show is what it is, and. You know, it's uh, it's called Roots Muay Thai. Every show is named after a different Bob Marley song. We only play really chilled out reggae during the day. And it's the energy we're trying to bring to it is that, you know, it's a prof- it's a fight show and the guys are fighting and they're really good fighters and they fight their heart out. But there's no aggressive attitude attached to it. That's one thing that we're trying to do on all levels is that make it a sport where even though... 95% of our YouTube followers and Instagram followers fall with, within a really uh, de- a dedicated sort of 18 to 35-year-old male group. We are expanding more and more to have families come to the events and have more uh, female fighters and more women coming and watching the show. So we need to make the sport in general uh, and rebelling as a package something that's that's. Uh, you know, attractive to a corporate partner that they don't think they're coming to an event where there's going to be fights in the crowd and gangsters at the show and, you know, just done in bad taste. So that that's the big thing. And that's been something we've tried to do since day one with all the branding, making it look as clean, as professional as possible so that the brands 
do want to see do see us as a community they want to be involved with not people who are sort of on the periphery periphery and i guess you know almost like a cliche thug sport so it's presenting the sport as a sport and not you know a bloodbath something you've alluded to is some of the undesirable elements of australian muay thai um i've definitely heard of motorcycle gangs and whatnot but what is the australian muay thai scene actually like what is the landscape like it's um it's really interesting like muay thai in particular um doesn't have as much of i guess undesirables as some of the other fight sports um it's very different in different states so traditionally queensland and west australia have been the two powerhouses queensland in particular um western australia perth now uh, i would say has the strongest muay thai scene like as far as number of gyms, uh, quality of fighters, and quality of events. So you have gym gyms like Thai Boxing Pit, which is Blair Smith, Toby Toby Smith's dad. You have Darren Riddler's gym. You have Cow Sock. You've got a lot of really good, strong Muay Thai gyms there and a lot of uh, Thai uh, nationals there coaching. Um, and their style of Muay Thai and the way they fight is outstanding. Queensland, on the other hand, there's a lot of gyms, a lot of fight shows. Their style can be sometimes a little bit different as far as the way they fight. There's some absolute legends there. So you have John Wayne Parther who runs Bunchu. Nugget McNaught is just back there again who he ran the biggest Muay Thai show Australia ever had, Evolution. There's some really good gyms there. But contrast-wise, style-wise, the quality, I believe, of Muay Thai in Perth is a lot stronger. There's a lot of shows in Queensland, one or two. Uh, New South Wales, where Sydney is, their scene is a bit smaller. They have predominantly an amateur Muay Thai scene, very few professional fighters. And then Melbourne, we're in a real growth transition period, which has gone from being kickboxing K1 to a more Muay Thai stage. But there's stories and there's background and history to all these states of characters. And it just, it makes Muay Thai in Australia very interesting. That was awesome for the main interview part. I want to talk a bit about an upcoming bout on your show this weekend. The episode will be released afterwards, but um, I think it would be cool to talk about. So I do a segment called Pick a Fight. And I want to discuss Compet Lek versus Jake Lund for the WBC belt. Why did you choose these two to fight for the WBC belt? Look, I, I only recently in the last uh, eight months moved from sanctioning with the World Muay Thai Council to WBC because I believe WBC had a more relevant rankings and clear structure of fighters that would be available for a world title fight. I've, sort of held off on doing that for a lot of years. And there was a couple of fighters I was looking at in particular. One was Toby Smith. The other was Chad Collins. The timing of those fights wasn't happening, but I had an agreement with um, Fairtex that Compad Lake would be on this show. 
and the timing of it ended up being perfect. He Complex ranking at number two at light heavyweight. Then the Aussie fighter uh, Ben Johnson, who had the I think an interim world title at light heavyweight, he retired uh, to pursue a boxing career. So automatically the the title became vacant. Complex number two. Um, he's scheduled to fight on the show, and I've got a I've had a Nice, good relationship with Jake Lund over the years. He's only fought on one of my shows before. Some promotions and stuff find Jake hard to work with. I've never had a single bad experience with him. And um, I contacted WBC. I was gonna. I was looking at getting Jake for Comfort Lake, anyways, because I I think of the available fighters in Australia, Jake would be the best option, um, the hardest fight. He's already fought David Pennampede and Toby's on a somewhat indefinite break again. So Jake was going to be the fight. I spoke to the WBC. Jake was the international champion at super middleweight, but also he told me that he was having to move up in weight because he wasn't making that weight too easily. So it all worked out at the same time and literally took mm-hmm. a day and a half to make that fight happen. So I think so, uh, physicality-wise and style-wise, I think it'll be a really good, interesting fight. Yeah. Do you have any predictions for the fight itself or favorites? Or you don't? You try not to go that way because you're the promoter? I try not to go that way because, I mean, that's that's my friend Andrew. And I, that's one of the arguments we have. He said, I am never ha- don't look happy when his fighters win the fight. And I said, look, man, I don't jump up and down in the ring because of a fighter winning. It's I'm the promoter. It's hard. I, my Aussie side really wants Jake to win and I like Jake and on the other side, I met Comfort Lake when he came out here last year, got along really well with him. I like his trainer thing that's coming out with him, Fairtex are my sponsors. So I want him, I want it to be a good fight. I just said to Tom before, because I was watching some of our profile pieces and I said, I really struggle because they're all guys I really like. and um, But I think I think most people in Australia are riding compet leg off. The, most people in Queensland are riding compet leg off. I think they feel, you know, a, a tie at light heavyweight. And I think they're going to be shocked when they see him in person, how tall and big and strong compet leg actually is. To me, uh, I think compet leg's the favourite but not by a huge margin. And uh, Jake's one of those guys that on any given day, he could beat anyone. I think, you know, obviously being at Fairtex and seeing Compet Lec train and he being a coworker and friend, I definitely favor him. But he also hasn't fought in a little while, so he might be a little ring rusty. But he did away with Jacob Benko you know, not too long ago, about a year ago, and he's still looking quite strong. I uh, he is a he is a very tall, you know, well built Thai man. He's you know almost six two, six three, or something like that. Uh, so I would assume he'd be a big problem for any foreigner. Yeah, exactly, and I think um, like uh, someone like Toby present a different challenge to Compet Lake just because of their it, Toby's absolute relentless tenacity but also Compet Lake's got weapons that would 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 make him quite 
a formidable opponent for someone like Toby. Jake isn't as aggressive a fighter as 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 a Toby Smith. So it, it, it's going to be really interesting because Jake's uses his reach really well, but also he's fighting a guy that is not taller. I think they're the same height, and I like. I think they'll actually be around the same weight in the ring. So it's a really even fight. But like I said, I I think Compadlec would be the slight favorite. But man, um, Jake's Jake's always full of surprises. Awesome. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing the show after this episode will actually be released after the show. So it'll be interesting to sort of listen to it in retrospect. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me, Sai. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much. That concludes our four-part series on sponsorship. A few things to go over first. Um, in the last pick a fight, we talked about Pet Morikot and Petrosian. Uh, Petrosian took that bout. I talked about it with Andrew Allen. And then because this episode is being released after Rebellion, um, Compet Lek unfortunately got knocked out in the second round by Jig Lund. A little bit of a surprising coincidence, but again, as I said before, Compet Lek hadn't fought in two years. He was also a bit nervous coming up in weight. You know, no excuses. Just didn't have it that day. In terms of the content with Sai, I thought there were a few really important important and interesting things that he brought up. One, it was really interesting hearing about his sponsors and how they didn't necessarily get a direct gain from him. A lot of it was about branding, entertainment to staff and his customer base, uh, exposure of the brand to different market. But there's brands like Quest Environment, which is which is an environmental and underground asset management and protection service, which has very, very little to do with Muay Thai. So there's that aspect of it. There's not really a clear gain, no direct gain for a company like Quest Environment. Obviously for Fairtex there is exposure to a very concentrated market, the gambling company as well. but there's also people that are just patrons of the arts, as Sai was talking about. I think he was being very, very smart in that he was just having four to five shows a year, but he's trying to increase the exposure for the brands through this other media outlets. Uh, then, of course, the other big sort of hurdle he's facing at this point is getting corporate sponsorship. It's basically like he's he needs to step up again. Um, and he's doing things in a positive direction to change that. Uh, changing the sort of stereotype around the show, moving it from a negative image to more positive, getting more females involved in the card, and also doing things like the sort of media strategy of exposing the fighters and really getting them to open up as people.
So overall, what can we take away from this series? I think first and foremost is how important relationships between people are. If you look at Yolanda in our first episode, she already had a relationship with Sintai, the massage company, had already been using rock tape. Uh, it was because of her position and who she was in relationship to a lot of other people that she got the, the monetary sponsorship. Also, if you look at Tim Fisher's sort of uh, approach to fight management versus sponsorship, he has people coming in regularly, building that relationship, paying and earning their way onto the team. Uh, with Aylin, it was more of an organic approach, testing people out, seeing how it goes. And then again with Sai, when he was first approached by Quest Environments, it was because Quest Environments already had a relationship to the market and to the community. They'd already invested in um, Chad Collins, Sam Bark, and John Wayne Parr, amongst others. So you have to really look at it from a relationship building standpoint. Um, I think it has to be a win-win for both parties. You, I think that we are seeing sort of two different types of sponsors. There's basically the patrons of the arts versus business sponsors. So a patron of the art would be someone like Quester Environments who just loves, loves, loves the sport and it wants to develop it. Uh, then there's also the more business approach uh, sponsors like Andrew Allen who is looking for uh, a sp athlete or talent who will bring his brand together with him to a higher level. I think ultimately we have to look also at the value of sponsorship. What is the value of the athlete, the company, the gym, and the promotion? What do they bring to people and who do they bring it to? So that really needs to be looked at Ultimately, it's still sponsorship is an investment. It's not you get something for free and then you just get it for free. That's not how it works. It's an investment between two parties into an ongoing business relationship. So I think the big lesson we can learn also from this is that we need to be looking at a long-term picture, a long-term strategy of building relationships between businesses, between media companies, in order to grow the sport. So, you know, there's a few actionable steps that you can take very easily. If you want to be promoted by a company, say, in fight style, invest in a pair of their shorts, then start promoting it. Slowly and or immediately, the company will recognize that you are adding value to them. And that may increase your likelihood of sponsorship down the road. You know, with um, Tim Fisher and Phuket Revolution, his gym, he has people come in as customers repeatedly invest in him invest in themselves and grow that way so 
And all these things, these relationships don't happen immediately. But if we're going to grow the sport, we need to have an idea all the time about sponsorship and business and growth because we live in a society where the market rules. And if we want to play within the rules of the market, we have to understand it. So that concludes my last episode in the four-part series on sponsorship. I will be recording a new episode. I think I'm going to be doing a two-part series on IFMA. So be sure to tune in to that. Thank you so much again for subscribing to the Patreon, for supporting me in this podcast. And you can always reach out to me at a.matt.lucas at gmail.com. This has been I'm Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics of and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people.